Do you have a story to tell about a terrible medical conversation? I want to hear from you. Please email me at christine at christinemeyermd.com. I can't wait for you to tell me more. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tell Me More. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Meyer. On the show, we break down some of the worst conversations in healthcare. Why? Because I believe that together we can build better ones. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Tell Me More, a conversation about creating better conversations in healthcare. Today, I am talking with Danielle. Danielle is kind enough to share her story, which is honestly quite profound. Uh, she is my age, I think, and had a stroke many years ago when she was just 33 years old. And in the course of that stroke, she has come in contact with many, many medical providers and had some pretty great, in fact, life-saving interactions and some maybe not so great. Danielle, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank I know this you. wasn't easy for you. I'm sure it brings back a lot of tough memories, but you do have a great story and it's so important, honestly, for both patients and doctors or healthcare providers that may listen. Um, you know, your story could have ended very, very differently. So tell me what happened. Uh, describe that, that infamous day for me. <laughs> that infamous day from what I remember, and I'm sure there's a lot of, which is one of the downfalls of a stroke is that your memory isn't good. So I fall into that category. <laughs> right. <laughs> so on that day, and I had to refer to my notes because <laughs> I had the day wrong the whole day. Oh, <laughs> anyway, God. it was back in 2003 and I was in my home with my two children one was three and the other one was six months old. Oh and my husband had just left for a business meeting out of town. And he had never left <laughs> since we were married. So it was the first wow. time he was out of town at like, you know, big conference, et cetera. So it was just a norm normal day. I was blow drying my hair and I started to feel a little funny. I didn't know what was happening. And I walked down the steps to check on my oldest son and just to make sure he was okay. Cause in my Wait, head, I was like, something's okay, not right. Pause here for a second because you and I are both mothers. Um, in fact, we have <laughs> kids the same age. And I just want to point out that you were, I mean, I'm going to steal your thunder a little, but you were basically having a stroke or about to have a stroke. And your first instinct was to walk down steps to check on your children, right? I mean, that is just classic motherhood right there. But anyway, go on. So you check on your toddler and he's okay. I check on him. Yeah, I didn't know what was happening, right? So I check on him just to make sure he was okay, which is interesting because it must be a natural instinct that Absolutely. something's not right. I want to make sure. And my and and the baby, Andrew, he was in bed. So I didn't worry about that. And as I walked down, I live in a townhouse. There's only like 10 steps in the first place. And But as I walked, I went down, check on him. And as I was walking back up, I realized I was getting weak. Mm. And I like had to like climb the stairs on my hands and knees. And so I eventually made it to my bedroom, which wasn't very far away. And I got up to my bed. And it wasn't until I was lying on the bed that I realized something's wrong. 
right? Something's off. So my natural instinct is to call my mother who lives in Florida. That was away. I'm like, something's not right. Something's happening. I don't know what. And I so didn't you, realize. you don't call 911. You no, call there your was no mother. Urgency. There that... was absolutely no urgency in my head at all. Wow. I just feel funny. Then she was like, oh, maybe we should call my sister-in-law who was a nurse. And she thought, oh, you probably have like a pinched nerve or something. And then as I'm talking to them, I realized that part of my left side isn't working. And like I was hanging off the bed and I, I realized I couldn't get my leg up. That was the leg. That was the side that was paralyzed. Still, I do not call 911. I talk to my sister. I talk to my friends. They all start panicking and then finally say, you have to call 911. So I'm like, all right, I'll call 911. Before 911 got there, my sister, my friend, and her sister were all at the house waiting for them. And I was like, okay, they, they, they came in and there was still no urgency. Nobody knew what was happening. And I was just like, okay, don't carry me out of this house in front of my child. So take him away. So he doesn't see me getting like carted down the steps in a, in a gurney. And, um, off to the hospital, we went, we were in the ER, me and my girlfriend, my husband still like has no idea what's going on. And they were like, Oh, they don't know. They just didn't know. Let's take a CAD scan. Let's see what's happening. We're hanging out. I feel fine. I mentally feel like I feel okay. And then, but, when the but you had back, you had some deficit, right? So when you showed up in the ER, your left side wasn't working. My Is left that right? side, yeah, was paralyzed from my so, shoulder down. So in the ER, did the triage nurse point that out, or the emergency room doctor say, "Hey, this lady's walking and talking and seems mentally fine, but uh, by the way, she can't move her left side." I wasn't. Well, I wasn't walking. I was just, you know, they wheeled me in there. And I wasn't so they, moving. So maybe they didn't notice? No, I think they knew. But I don't know. I don't remember. Okay. I just, like, I don't remember that part, that detail, to be honest with you. Fair um, enough. I feel like they knew that I couldn't move, but it still wasn't a big. Urgent. Urgent. And maybe it was urgent to them. Mm-hmm. But nobody that was with me felt like it was urgent either. Because when they came back after the CAT scan and said, hey, you know, you had a brain bleed. It was so shocking that my sister fell to the floor and fainted. Oh, my gosh. Right in the emergency room because nobody had any idea. And they were like, oh, you know, we're not sure how much you'll recover, but it could take up to a year, blah, blah, blah. Wow. So So you're in the emergency room and there's just you feel funny one minute and check on your toddler. And the next minute you're paralyzed on the left side. And all you know is. You had a bleed and it may take a year to recover. At this point, that's really all the information you have. That's it. All that's right. All, that's all we had to go with. So then what happened? So then after I spent five days in the ICU, you know, because it was unusual. I was so young. I wasn't supposed to have a stroke. Nobody has a stroke. I was like, you know, special. I was special in the ICU mm-hmm. because who, you know, what 33-year-old has a stroke? Right. You don't. So the only conclusion, like the diagnosis that they gave me was you had what's called an AVM and it's like a bad connection in your brain that you're born with and that it can bleed or it cannot bleed in your lifetime in yours bled. But after it bleeds, it seals itself off and it'll never bleed again. So the goal was 
let's get you back to moving around. Let's see, let's get you to rehab. Let's see what's going to come back. And who who gave you that diagnosis of AVM and it sealed itself off and now you just got to get rehab? A neurologist. Okay, so Not a, neurolog- a neurosurgeon. Got it. So, and you had just had a CAT scan. Had you had any other testing? I probably had an MRI. So a neurologist comes in and reviews everything and says, this is the likeliest diagnosis, but we're not terribly worried about anything else happening because this particular connection, like you said, once it's like once and done, and now we don't worry about that anymore. We just got to worry about getting you back to yourself as much as possible, right? Correct. Okay. So then what happens? My husband did not agree with that diagnosis. He did not like that. That Mm -hmm. wasn't an okay answer for him. And when he questioned the neurologist, he got into an argument with him because he's like, I want to take her to New York. I need to take her somewhere else for a second opinion. And the neurologist was almost like insulted. Mm. Like, you know, we know what we're kind of talking about here. And he was like, I don't care. I want her transferred. He wanted me out of there too to like get down to Penn. Or Jefferson. And um, Jefferson couldn't take me after he was like fighting to get me out of there. But then I ended up in that I needed to go to rehab. So I went to an inpatient rehab. Mm-hmm. And all the while I was there, Stan, who was still trying to find the right doctors for me. Mm-hmm. This wasn't right. He didn't agree with that. But I went through the process of what I was being followed by this neurologist, and he's a local neurologist. So I'm doing whatever he's telling me to do in the meantime, until I can get to a neurosurgeon, which they don't necessarily take you very quickly. So we had to wait to get to a neurosurgeon. So it's February. So so let's talk about this neurologist interaction for a second. So obviously, I mean, (laughs) again, this is like a movie where you're about to give away the ending, but... He's not on the right track. He's managing you based on a diagnosis that ultimately we find out is not right. So in your interactions with him, like when, when you first met him, were you like, all right, like, I feel good about this doctor. Like I trust him. Or were you too ill, too scared, too whatever to pay attention to that? I don't remember exactly how I was feeling. I didn't feel like I didn't trust him. Mm. But then again, you know, I now know that I wasn't a hundred percent. So I was really just say. focused. Yeah. And if he told me I was gonna be okay, I was gonna be okay. Yeah, yeah. Because I didn't think I wasn't gonna be okay. So the mm. less the diagnosis he gave me, the better off I was. I was like, fine, I'm at, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be that. fine. Right. But there was a lot of behind the scenes, like, you know, because I did you know, I wasn't in my right mind. I, I didn't find out I wasn't like 100% for a while until I went to the inpatient rehab. So mm-hmm. mentally, I was not okay. You know, I did have a seizure. I was paralyzed. So Stan kind of took care of the medical end Got it. for me. So, so it's not something that like, I was making decisions on, to be honest. Yeah. With so but Stan, your husband, from that first interaction with that neurologist was like, yeah, this isn't right. But it's not easy to get in with a neurosurgeon because they are very busy and they're not a lot of them, but it turns out you live in a pretty great area. You live outside of Philadelphia, which is like a Mecca for 
amazing doctors and, and medical facilities. So you go to rehab, you do the best you can in rehab. How were your interactions with doctors and healthcare providers in rehab? For the most part, they were fine. You know, we're in, in rehab, it was like, you need to physically get better, you know, and mentally. So, you know, their goal was to get you walk out of here, which I did. I walked out of there, you know, with a minor prosthetic on my foot, but they did what they thought they needed to do. Then they didn't have any, you know, they didn't have any restrictions on their end. Mm -hmm. Although later we realized there should have. have. All right. So this is, this is like the the biggest buildup to a ending ever, but (laughs) So you leave rehab and your husband, Stan, is just still like not satisfied with the information you have. You're just happy. You're quote unquote, okay. And this, you're like ready to put this whole thing behind you and move on with your life. But your husband's like, no, we're going to go see more doctors. So tell me about that. Tell me about these high, highly sought after specialists in these cities. Mm-hmm. Yes, high profile. I mean, we live, so. you know, in a, a major metropolitan city, you know. Right, right. So we can't, we can't argue that there's, you know, not great doctors. Great. Med- well, they're they're all great. Doc- we're supposed to think they're all great doctors, right? <laughs> we're, supposed to, we're believing that if they're associated with the pen and the Jeffersons and everything, that they're the top notch people. So he had me scheduled with three different people. And um, do you first. remember any of those interactions? Yeah. So I was going through the process of rehabbing. He had made the appointments and like, you know, one was a month later, one was two months later, but that's when we were able to get in. Mm-hmm. So the first doctor we went, we went to, you know, Googled it up. He's supposed <laughs> to be great. This guy's great. He's the best, blah, blah, blah. We think we're going to the best. And he was very dismissive. Like, mm-hmm. yep, you have an ABM. You're fine. You're good to go. Like nothing will ever happen to you again. You are totally fine. Wow. And was this, do- did you have to travel to see this doctor? Was it in? No, he was local. He was in- like in Philly. You know? Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. It, interestingly, I think he was associated with Jefferson and then he went out on his own. Mm. But interestingly enough, we did find out that he didn't specialize in what I had. Mm. And I think that's where the misdiagnosis comes from. He wasn't the vascular surgeon. He wasn't the vascular neurosurgeon. He kind of focused more on the spine. But he never said that to you. He never said, hey, this isn't really my area. I think you're fine, but you probably should see somebody else. He just was like, I know this. Um, and, And, you know, just as an aside, and I hate to pigeonhole people, but neurosurgeons, I mean, they're literally brain surgeons, right? They're the rock stars of medicine. And so they can have a bit of an ego and, oh, yeah. and and probably maybe earned it because they've been in training for a billion years and do one of the most complicated, you know, medical procedures in anywhere. So, but he, he does not have the humility to say to you, I mostly do spine. You should see someone else. He just, you're good. You're good to go. And let me guess your husband, uh, Stan was like, nope, not a good answer. Is that what happened? Yeah, he must have had a gut instinct that something was wrong, especially Mm -hmm. since our interaction with the neurologist was not good. Even when I followed up on him, he was like, he was still bent out of shape that Stan was questioning him, Mm. even like follow up. But he was the only guy that I was seeing. So we go to him and and he says, no, you're good. You're good to go. Mm -hmm. And then you wait another month. Mm -hmm. Or a couple of weeks or whatever. 
the mm-hmm. process was. We went to a, another neurosurgeon who specializes in vascular neurosurgery. Mm-hmm. Supposedly the best of the best. And immediately he said, I don't know what's wrong with you until I do what's called an angiogram. Huh. And you had not had that in your emergency stay, in your ICU stay, certainly not in rehab. No angiogram. You just had a CAT scan, MRI, and lots of presumptions about your diagnosis based on those two tests. And then you meet this Mm -hmm. doctor and he's like, well, you haven't had the right test yet, right? Right. I mean, it could have, he's like, you know, he's like, it could be an ABM, but I don't know until I go in there and look at it, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, what he did. So tell me about an angiogram. Tell me what that test is. And, you know, because it sounds like, oh, it's just like another MRI, but it's not, right? It's it's a fairly invasive no, it's a, test. It is, a, it is an invasive test, you know, where they go up through your uh, femoral artery and they feed a tube all the way up to your brain to look at it. So there's some exactly risk with that. that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Some bad I mean, things can happen a, in that test. You probably know more than me, but... <laughs> Not the best place to be poking around in, right, but uh, right. he was able to see it and he was able to diagnose that it wasn't an AVM. It was an AV fistula, which is a different type of connection. And it has a high probability of bleeding again. Wow. Wow. Very high probability. And oh, until God. I can fix it, you can't lift anything heavier than a fork or a newspaper. Now, I had been to rehab. I have a six-month-old baby. So I had done everything wow. wrong up to that point. I'm so curious about just how I know how you receive the news because you're tough and you're like, let's move <laughs> on from this, right? But how how did he tell you this? Like, How did he come out of that procedure and say to you and Stan, well, it's not what you thought it was, and it's a very big deal because you're still in danger. This could happen again at any moment. How did he tell you that? So this particular neurosurgeon, as great as he is, does not have the best bedside manner. He's very <laughs> matter-of-fact. He's very matter-of-fact. He's kind of arrogant. He knows what he's doing, and he speaks as if I know exactly what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And this is what it is. I'll fix you. Mm-hmm. I'll fix you because I, you know, because I can. Oh, and by the way, if I can't fix you, I'll, you know, there's multiple ways to fix you. Mm-hmm. But he, you know, not a lot of small talk, just very, you know, he, he's arrogant. He doesn't mm-hmm. have a good bedside manner. <laughs> Did that make any difference to you? Or were you like, listen, I don't care. I'm not bringing you home to meet my mother. I just want you to fix my brain so I don't bleed again. <laughs> Well, he did meet my mother, and ah! she still doesn't like her. <laughs> <laughs> that is hysterical. So, but um, you were like, he's allowed to be arrogant. I don't care. I'm going with it. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, he is supposed to be the best of the best, and so yeah, you listen to him, even mm. though you don't necessarily like the news. But in a way, it was like, okay, he must know what he's doing mm-hmm. because if we questioned everybody else. And he was so, you know, he did the test. He saw what he saw. He knew what he was doing. That was just the facts. So you mm-hmm. you accept that. But we still had another appointment with a guy in New York just to confirm that or to make sure that was right. So we mm-hmm. did go to New York after I had the angiogram. So he had all the results of that. 
And he was at 100% agreement that, yes, it was an AV fistula. And you guys decided just for convenience, you were going to stick with the Philadelphia neurosurgeon yeah, because you didn't want to have all this done in New York. How about that second opinion, or by now, I, I it sounds like it was more like your seventh opinion or something, um, <laughs> in New York, that was also a neurosurgeon. He also kind of mm-hmm. gave you crappy news, but you weren't surprised. How was his demeanor? Same kind of arrogant, matter of fact, or... He wasn't quite as arrogant in general. Mm-hmm. He was a little bit, I think what, besides the fact if they're arrogant or not, I think it was okay because they knew what they were talking about. And you knew that they knew what they were talking about. You know, the guy that said you were, you know, the neurosurgeon that told me I was okay and I would never have it again. He was kind of goofy. Yeah. And we went in there and he was saying like weird things to me in the first place. And so you didn't get a very good sense. He was just a little off. That's so, that's so interesting. So you, we tolerate arrogance when it's paired with information, when it's paired with skill. You know, if you have the level of skill and you portray yourself as confident in that skill, I'm mm-hmm. going to accept your arrogance. But if you're arrogant and also, you know, I don't have faith in what you're telling me, then those two things just immediately rub you the wrong way and you're moving on from that doctor, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so you end up going going back to the Philadelphia doctor, the one who finally got it right, but mm-hmm. isn't doesn't have the warmest, fuzziest bedside manner. <laughs> and then what happens? So he told me that he was going to go, he was going to fix it, but he couldn't fix it. Like I couldn't get on the schedule, the surgery schedule for two months. And so in between then, I still cannot lift anything or do anything strenuous because it's really a high probability that it's going to bleed again. Like it's, you know, it's like you're, it's like you're a walking time bomb. You don't really know that you're a walking time bomb until Mm -hmm. like they tell you you're a walking time bomb. Mm -hmm. So we just kind of waited. And and he was very matter of fact, he's like, I'm going to go try to, to fix you with glue an embolization is basically glue to glue that connection. I'm going to go back up through your femoral artery and I'm going to try to glue it that way. If I can't reach it, then the next day you're going to have a craniotomy and then I'll cut your head open and we'll do it that way. So that was like (laughs) the only thing I knew is hopefully he can get it done. If not the next day, they're cutting my head open to fix it. Wow. And so wait, (laughs) so here's this doctor, right? You've already been through hell and back and you have, I can't even imagine what that's like. You have two little kids. So, and he's like, all right, so plan A is blah, 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 glue, this and that. You've already had an angiogram, you know, the procedure. So you're not particularly stressed out about that part, but you know, plan B is we not just cut your head open. We shave your head. We cut your skull open. We enter into your brain. You basically have brain surgery. And when he's Mm -hmm. presenting these two options to you, like, is he as matter of fact as he was in the beginning? Like, like, were you blindsided by this idea that you may end up having your skull cut open? Definitely blindsided. And I mean, in that respect, because you don't, well, you have to understand like me and what Mm -hmm. I was going through and what other people were going through. I was going through the steps. I had a problem. I have to get it fixed. I have to move on. Other people in my family and people around me were like, you almost died. You may die. 
it's just a different feeling. So I'm, you know, he tells me he, he's very sure that he can fix me. And so he's very confident in his very brief, you know, doesn't get into many details. And he does tell you, you know, if, when you go in surgery, I don't know, you may have another because now I can walk, right? And now I can move again. And so I got all my stuff back. And he's like, but after surgery, you may have another defect. Oh, boy. But you know, right. like, you know, so that was the concern. First, it was, did he get it when you wake up from surgery? And the second was, Am I going to have another defect? Like, you know, is my, am I going to be paralyzed again? Is something going to happen? So in all this, I'm, I keep trying to put myself in your shoes. Like I'm thinking every time I lay on the table for this angiogram or the day of the procedure or whatever, I would need like somebody freaking holding my hand, like talking me off a ledge. Like, you know, I would be, I cried when I had a colonoscopy because I thought (laughs) I would never wake up. So, so besides Stan and your mother and your family, arguably people who saved your life more than the initial set of doctors that you saw, right? So when you go in for these procedures, like, did you get any of that? Did you get any of that warm, fuzzy, supportive, a nurse, a technician, an IV person, an M- a radiology tech, certainly not your neurosurgeon, but anywhere along the way, did you feel supported by the healthcare professionals that were involved in your case? You know, the people that took, that took care of you in the hospital were all very, were all very nice. The care around me, I felt was, was fine, mm-hmm. you know, but, but then again, like I'm not sitting there asking the questions like Stan was asking the questions and he was, he was my supporter, you know, because again, I was like, all right, we're just going to get this fixed and we're just going to move out of here. And that was just my, the way I dealt with it. And I believe this hundred percent. And if anybody's listening to one thing that I say today, it is that if you have a positive attitude about what will happen, you will get a positive outcome. Mm-hmm. I believe that that helped. You know, and so even if you're going through something terrible or whatever, and you can't just be like, oh, what was me? Oh, this is terrible. Oh, I'm never going to get out of this because you may never get out of it. But I never thought that way. Right. It's like, oh, this kind of sucks. Let's move through this. So so basically your internal wiring is such that. Yeah. Which is messed up. Don't <laughs> <laughs> Definitely messed now, up. for sure. <laughs> that wiring didn't necessitate TLC. You're just not that kind of patient and never have been before, during, since. Very interesting. Very interesting. So in a way, couldn't have happened to a better person because somebody who (laughs) needed a lot of TLC, who had to deal with these type of specialists and these type of procedures, probably would have had a very different experience, a negative attitude, and maybe a very negative outlook, right? Or outcome, you know, based on Mm -hmm. that. All right. So, so you, he does his thing. Do you remember that the day of the gluing? Yes, I, I do remember the day of, well, I remember waking up, right? So it was, and that was my biggest thing. Do I have to go through the craniotomy the next day or did he get it? And he got it, mm-hmm. right? He comes in and he's like, you're good to go. Like, <laughs> you're fine. I got, I did what I needed to do. Like I knew I was going to, you know, be able to to do it. It was very matter of fact, like this is what he does every day. You know, it's a major, you know, brain surgery 
for people, but it's his everyday life. So I guess he he earned that, mm, you know, feeling so. of like, I am the God. And he, <laughs> he acted like that. He, he did. <laughs> he acted like that. If I see him, like, you know, he's well so well known. But then a couple hours after surgery, my foot wasn't moving and oh my, my foot God. dropped. So and then right. they call him back. Oh and I was God. like, oh, you know, now now we're having some complications, some side effects and complications, you know, and he came back in the room and like, I'll never forget this. And he was like, I see what's happening. And, you know, you could go back to rehab and, you know, hopefully it'll it'll strengthen again. But if you don't like if my so it was I was foot drop. Right. If that's all you have, you're lucky. Mm. I fixed you. Mm. And it was. You know, to me, it was like, oh, my God, my foot's not working. What if I can't, like, walk right, blah, blah, blah. And his opinion was, that's nothing. Hmm. You're lucky to be alive. And basically, everybody thought I was lucky to be alive and in the and in the condition that I was. Like a medical miracle. They did call me a medical miracle, wow. which is bizarre mm. to even think of. Because I don't think of myself as a medical miracle. I still don't. I like this. When I hear that in my head, I'm like, I'm not a medical miracle. You know, he had a problem. He fixed it. Right. But to you, when he comes in the first time, he's like, I fixed it. I got it. You don't, you're thrilled. You don't have to have a craniotomy. Basically, at that moment, you're as whole as can be. No hole in your head. Your legs working. Your foot's working. You're like ready to celebrate, right? And then all of a sudden you get slapped in the face with, well, maybe not. You've got this foot drop, but he's kind of like, what do you expect? Like you're alive. Like, honestly, yeah, that is what it does. Exactly. His opinion. Wow. So and that's when my mother heard him say, it. <laughs> <laughs> very matter of fact, when like everybody's like, oh no, something's happening to her. You know, it's like, this is it. It's coming to the end. It was that interaction that she saw with him. So even in that moment where arguably he did a procedure to you, true, he saved your life, but he also, as a result of his procedure, you now have another problem. He was not like, hey, you know, I'm sorry this happened. Like, this is one of the things that can happen after a procedure. He was just like, yep, yep, but you're lucky to be alive. So, wow. Yep. That was wow. it. There wasn't like this grandiose like sympathy for my complications. Wow. Because but, to him that was a, that was a great outcome. Right. Well, and and he you're alive. Was able to reach it. Yeah, he was able to reach it. And you know, from there on it was very much like I fixed you. You're good. Can I have kids? Yep, you can have kids. <sighs> and you continued with him. Obviously, you went back for your follow-ups for many years? Mm-hmm. Yes, many years like least 10 years or, or more, I would have just an annual MRI. And, ha- and did the same his, thing. his demeanor never changed. Never changes. <laughs> so funny to me. It was very, yeah. So even was, like, cause you know, when, uh, I don't know, like I've seen this in, in neonatologists, for example, like when they save a baby, right. And they can be, you know, earn some arrogance too, but they save a baby. And then like, Five years later, they're invited to this kid's fifth birthday party. They're like showing up at the birthday party and they're like crying, <laughs> like, look at, look at this great thing that happened. So in your 
relationship with this neurosurgeon who did in fact save your life. Nobody's arguing that you had two more kids. You had, you know, lived a full life. You have a wonky foot. That's pretty Mm -hmm. much normal. Right. (laughs) But, uh, but never, never that celebratory, like, Oh my God, it's year five. It's year seven. It's none of that. Did he ever celebrate you? No, no. Mm -mm. I was just a patient that he fixed and that's his job. It's right. like being in a mechanic shop. <laughs> like, oh, your car was broke. Oh, well, okay, we'll fix it. Like, they don't want to see your car back. They don't care about your car. Mm. Like, I feel like he didn't care about my car mm. for me. And like, he, cause I mean, he, he did in the sense that, you know, of course, I'm going to fix you. And I'm certain I can fix you. But there's never any warm and fuzzies. Got like, it. He did kind of walk around with that. I mean, and this, you know, he has a great reputation. You know, you know, he has a great reputation. Yep. He's the guy. Right. You know, he teaches people. He So he and that's exactly. So you take that because of his tremendous expertise. So if you could teach people anything about your experience in all of this in terms of how they advocate with their healthcare providers or how they talk with their healthcare providers, what advice would you give people? I think there's a couple things. First is definitely go with your gut feeling, you know, with a medically or in any other situation in life. Um, as far as doctors go, I think um, it's okay to trust the doctor that doesn't give you a hug. And lastly, of course, don't sweat the small stuff. Mm, love it. Love it. Perfect. Thank you again so much for your time. I look forward to talking to you again. Okay, thanks. Thank you so much for listening. Are you ready to join our conversation? Just go to Facebook and search Christine Meyer MD. Follow us to join 14,000 other people committed to creating better conversations in healthcare.